When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's August 29th, 1911, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by... Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. It was today in history in 1911 that slaughterhouse staff in Oroville, California, discovered an emaciated, disorientated man in the corral behind the abattoir. This man would turn out to be the last known survivor of the Yani, one of the indigenous groups decimated by the arrival of white settlers. He called himself Ishi, the Yani word for man, which is still a better name than the label put on him by early 20th century anthropologists, who referred to him as, quote, the most uncontaminated aborigine in the known world. Yeah, he was found just before sunset by Floyd Hefner, who was the son of the next door dairy owner, and he was apparently hanging out waiting for meat deliveries. And as you say, Rebecca, Ishi was emaciated, he was exhausted, he was quite frightened, he was also really very hungry. But what happened to him was that uh, the authorities were called and uh, the sheriff directed Adolf Kessler, who was a 19-year-old slaughterhouse worker, to just handcuff Ishi, who apparently smiled and complied. But, you know, even once he got back to his cell, it was really, really difficult, if not impossible, for people to communicate with him because no one knew his language. And they did actually try to bring a, a, a number of Native Americans to him, but he just wasn't able to express himself because he didn't speak any of the languages that they spoke. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, they put him in a jail cell, not because he was accused of any crime, because they simply didn't know what to do mm. with him. Um, they couldn't speak to him. They were worried for his safety and this felt like an amazing story to the people of Oroville. This is 40 years after the world thought that all of his people had disappeared from the earth. And then suddenly standing there is a survivor of the Yahi tribe. Um, and you won't believe what happened next, but we should probably give you some historical <laughs> context first. So this story of the Yana can really be traced back to the gold rush. Um, largest mass migration in modern history, 1848, when gold is found uh, at Sutter's Mill, 300,000 people coming to the wilderness of California. And as a result of all of those migrants coming, the Native Americans that lived there suddenly found that, A, the food and drink that they uh, subsisted on, like deer and salmon, were depleting around them, and that was obviously a threat to their existence. B, diseases that were unfamiliar to their immune systems were also travelling in, along with the economic migrants, and see that their villages were under attack, that the people who were building the new towns, towns like Oroville, for all of these people working in the gold industry, were attacking natives who tried to defend their territory. Yeah, I mean, attempting to resist all of this were the Yahi, who were a subgroup of the Yana tribe. And they engaged in regular battles and also raids on white settlers. But while he was still a child, Ishii's own father was killed in a, in a village massacre because there was kind of a quid pro quo going on between the natives and the region's new population. Ishii actually escaped with his mother by jumping into a river. But as you say, most of the Yahi were slaughtered and there was only 
only this remnant band of about 40 who remained. And they pretty much dispersed into the countryside and managed to hide themselves successfully for nearly half a century, which is astonishing. Yeah, I mean, Ishii's entire lifetime is the story of the decline of the Yahi people. Um, So he was born sometime between 1860 and 1862, when there were around 400 Yahi people left. As you say, by the time that they'd relocated as a result of this genocide, really, happening all around them, there were 40. um, And, you know, huge events of mass casualties. Some of the new towns incentivized bounties on the natives. They'd offer 50 cents for a scalp, $5 for a head. Men like Robert Anderson, the Indian hunter, killed approximately 70 people in just two raids in 1865. 30 people were murdered in a cave by cowboys in 1871. Mm. So this is what's going on. It's no surprise that smaller groups, basically Ishii's family, go and relocate themselves into a densely thicketed canyon ledge. And they called it Grizzly Bear's Hiding Place because a grizzly bear had once had its den there. And even getting to that hideout shows you just how vulnerable the group was at this point because they were escaping one massacre, but as they were fleeing, they were pursued into the hills by hostile cattlemen and they killed about half of those survivors. They actually escaped from two massacres. Mm. The eventual survivors who made it there totaled about 16 people, mostly Ishii's relatives. He was four or five at the time. They hunted deer, wildcats and rabbits. They gathered acorns, which they ground up and cooked as a mush. But as you can imagine, over 40 years... Ishii being the youngest, they grew older, sustenance became harder to obtain, you know, that kind of hunter-gatherer lifestyle. You really need an influx of younger people to keep it going. And yeah. then numbers obviously naturally started to dwindle. There was contact with the white settlers only once. In 1908, a party of surveyors stumbled across the camp. Ishii and his family managed to conceal his mother, who was sick, under blankets, and then the rest of them fled until the party had moved on after ransacking the camp. And when Ishii came back, his sister and uncle never returned. These were the, you know, these were the last holdouts by this point. It's possible that they drowned while trying to flee through a river. And then his mother died soon after and Ishii was alone. So after this moment, as far as the world is concerned, the Yahi were likely extinct. But Ishii managed to survive completely alone for another three years. And it's at this point that he emerges and tries to make contact, presumably because he was some combination of completely starving because he was on his own and trying to survive in a very hostile situation. And also possibly, some people have speculated, devoid of company and wanting some sort of communication with other people that had obviously stopped at the point at which his entire tribal group was killed. So he ends up in that prison cell. Those unflattering headlines are written, although they ultimately helped him, because reading those newspapers were Alfred L. Krober and T.T. Waterman, who were professors in San Francisco, and they decided to intervene and bring him to the school's new Museum of Anthropology. They were like, here is a living case study for the kind of thing we're looking into. So they quickly wired the sheriff, quote, Hold Indian till arrival, Professor State University, who will take charge and be responsible for him. Matter, important account, Aboriginal history. The professors turned up and uh, then returned with Ishii in their care to San Francisco, where they provided him with furnished living quarters in the university's museum. uh, And he was basically put on display. You know, outsiders could basically turn up and watch him make arrows and describe aspects of Yahi culture as they started to have breakthroughs in their ability to communicate with him. And for nearly five years, Ishii lived in this museum while teaching the professors whatever he was able to communicate about the Yahi people. 
Crucially, Krober and Waterman recorded Ishi speaking his native language onto wax cylinders, totaling in the end close to six hours of content, which, you know, at the time was the only evidence of the language left and they were recording it for posterity. But they do seem to have genuinely cared for him as well. You know, they took him out, he went out on car trips, he went on train trips, they took him to a vaudeville show, but also they took him back to the traditional homelands of the Yanni people so he could help them map it. But from almost the day of his discovery... Um, he was beset with a variety of physical ailments, bronchial infections, back pain. He was often ill because he had no immunity to things like TB, which ultimately killed him. They tried unsuccessfully to prevent doctors from autopsying him because they knew that out of respect for Yahi tradition that bodies should remain intact after death. I mean, they failed to prevent it, but they did at least even after his death show that respect for his culture. But even that visit back to the country where he came from was difficult. He didn't know whether he could trust anyone at all. This is a site of great trauma. You know, it's a site of special significance for him historically, but it's also the site at which all of those massacres happened led him to the position of being the very last Yahi man in the first place. But he eventually did comply and he and Krober went back to Yahi country and they drew maps, they marked the crucial sites of Ishii's life and they recorded the place names uh, as the Yahi knew them. And these are hugely important documents that, you know, even if this was being done in a comparatively sort of rudimentary era of ethnography compared to the way these same uh, questions would be tackled today, it's still a really important set of documents for contemporary anthropologists to be able to draw on. And it was when he went back to that landscape of his ancestry that he posed stripped to the waist for photographers. And that was the only time that happened. Mm. Um, He insisted in every other photo, it's quite interesting, if you see a picture of him, he's always wearing a suit, shirt and tie. He insisted to be dressed like the people in San Francisco he was around. He didn't want to be paraded about. Um, And he made a point of trying as best as possible to live like they did. He had his own bank account, for instance. But when it came to his name, um, he insisted on um, the dogma of his people, which is that you can't speak your own name until someone else has done so first. So there was no one to introduce him. So when he was asked his name, he said, I have none because there were no people to name me. Mm. Um, And it was Krober and Waterman who decided with him to call him Ishi because it simply meant man. You'd identify yes. with that, Ollie. Uh, <laughs> Tomorrow. I gotta say, for a naturalist, he really did like killing things. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 